Welcome back to the Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast. My name is Isaiah Leininger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Just like that. Yeah. Uh, and I cannot do my normal introduction because joining me today is not Walker Howell. Unfortunately, he's not able to be with us today. He had some business to take care of. But we do have Timothy Sakula back with us. Uh, he's been a guest on a couple episodes. He's hosted an episode before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the episode with Lonnie Jones over mental health. So definitely go make sure that you check this one, check that episode out after this one. Uh, and again, Tim, thank you so much for, for pinching in for us and, and helping us as you've done before. And you've, I'm hoping that you'll be able to do again, uh, Lord willing. Go ahead and just reintroduce yourself for those at home real quick. And then we'll introduce our big guest. So yeah, my name is Timothy Sakula. Uh, I'm a fellow student here. I uh, run the Exhort One Another website, which you can find by going to Facebook at EOA, at EOA website or uh, searching my name on Facebook and going through that. Uh, I've done some work, of course, with this podcast before, as he's saying, and we're ready to get into this. Absolutely. And again, thank you so much for, for joining us today, Tim. Uh, but our guest for this episode, besides Tim, uh, Tim's playing the part of co-host for us today. But our guest today is going to be Luke Tatum. Go ahead and say hello, Luke. Hey. Hey. We're, we're very glad to have Luke on the episode. Uh, great guy. Very knowledgeable about the scriptures. And we're, we're th- yes, you. Uh, and we're, we're thankful to have him on the show as well. Uh, this season is season four. And in season four, we've been looking at apologetics. Uh, and of course, the idea behind apologetics is defending the faith providing resources for us as Christians and for the critics of Christianity to be able to defend the faith, say, this is why we believe what we believe. But of course, Christianity is not the only religion that has a version of apologetics. There's a lot of religions out there. There's a lot of different things out there that people may believe in. And so the goal of this episode, as you can tell by the title, is which religion should I choose? And we want to go through some major world religions and look at why, first of all, why should people be religious at all? But also, is there a correct religion? Is there really a reason to believe one religion over the other? And again, we're thankful for Luke and for Tim joining us for this episode. Uh, Obviously, these two guys are very, very wise beyond their years. But Luke did want to make sure that we, we had pointed out that we are not experts on these religions. Not even close, no. Uh, we, we, are, we have not detailed studied these religions in depth. Uh, and so if we say anything that uh, about a certain religion or about a certain practice that is not actually true, then we would love for you to be able to inform us of that uh, so that we can learn and, and correct our mistake. And obviously we, we mean nothing that we're going to say with on the show with ill will or with judgment. Uh, we're simply trying to look at the world and look at religion and and help maybe make you uh, make a decision on which religion you need to choose. Uh, but before we do that, we have to define our terms. So what do we mean when we use the word religion? And Luke, you want to go ahead and tackle this one real quick. Well, the word religion, I have, I have to do my languages thing here for a second, right? The word religion is from the Latin. And the word religion is from the prefix re, which of course means to do again, and a form of the word lago, which is to tie. So religio has to do with the idea of retying two things. So religion is meant to be the retying of, if you want to think about it as mankind and God. This is mankind's attempt 
to, through a change in both our thought and our action, get back to God, get back to proper spiritual balance, get back to whatever that end goal, whatever you think that end goal is, you're trying to spiritually retie yourself to it. Now, that's different from philosophy, which is study of thought, a field of thought, a way that you try and organize yourself intellectually and maybe spiritually, but not really spiritually, to be able to look at the world from a certain perspective. And we were talking about this before when we sort of prepared some for this episode about the difference between the two. Um, And it's sort of a fuzzy difference. There's not a solid line between this is a religion versus this is a philosophy. Because part of religion, if you're really wanting to grasp the, the core of a religion, is you change your philosophical bent and you say, okay, this is also how I'm going to think about the world. But there is a difference. And I think that a lot of the difference comes down to devotion, the aspect of changing your actions, because sometimes you can think of things, you you can belong to a certain philosophical tradition, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have changed your action based on that. So if I were to say, for example, that I am now a Taoist, which is a philosophy that comes out of China. I can say that, and it doesn't have a lot of bearing on my day-to-day activities. It has to do with how I think about the world and how I think about myself in the world. And maybe in a general sense, I would try to change the course of my life to reflect that thought. But it doesn't have to do with, there's no If you want to think about it using a Christian metaphor, there's no Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening. Like there's not that repetitive daily interaction with your philosophy in the same way that there is with the religion. You're not devoted to something specifically. And the other big difference that I thought of between the two is identity. You don't say, well, I am a metaphysicist. And that doesn't mean the same thing as saying, I am a Christian, or I am a Muslim, or I am a Jew. You're making a specific claim that has to do with both how you think about the world and how you want to behave in that world. You're not just in this philosophical realm trying to claim, here's what I think about X, Y, and Z. You're actually tying yourself down to a specific identity that is established, that is greater than yourself, and saying, here's what I want to do about it. I think that's an excellent way of looking at it, and I appreciate you your thoughts on that, Luke. I wanted to add on to that. You know, like you like you said, when you, when you are religious or when you subscribe to a specific religion, whatever it may be, like you pointed out, that requires dedication, devotion, thought, and that changes who you are. Right? There's a lot of verses in the Bible about how Christ changes our identity, how we become. Uh, a new person, a new creation when we become a Christian. And I think that's not a principle that applies to all religions. If you are truly following this religion or whatever deity it may be that you are worshiping in that religion, then you are to be completely devoted to that. Now, obviously, we see examples all around the world of people who, you know, claim to be religious and maybe are not so in word. Uh, excuse me, they claim to be religious in word, but maybe are not so in work, in action, in deed. Uh, but the, the point of the matter is, like, and I think, again, I appreciate you pointing this out, it's not a thought system. Religion is not a thought system. 
It's something that changes you. And I think that's one of the things that we need to bring up when we ask the question, why should someone be religious in the first place? Like you pointed out, it's a belief system, not a thought system. It changes who we are and how we think. And so that's one of the ways that, uh, and one of the reasons that we want to encourage you at home to be religious. What, you know, whatever religion it may be, you have to first be religious. You have to first want to worship or subscribe to a higher power. If you add on top of that, if you look at this from a more historical bent, you can also see other reasons. It helps us interpret the world around us. So like you were saying, it builds that identity. It helps us shape how we act, but it also helps shape our perspective of why everything is the way it is. Um, we live in a tumultuous world where things like lightning strikes happen, where things like ships get capsized. And throughout the years, religion has been an answer that humanities came up with in order to attempt to explain the everyday goings on. Uh, we've seen religions rise and fall based on this natural phenomena explanation. Uh, and so that's another reason why determining which religion I should choose is important because that begins to set your entire worldview into a perspective. I appreciate the point that you both just made about religion being a virtue in itself. And obviously you want to try and choose the correct religion and that's why we're here. But you think about when Paul makes it to Athens and he starts talking with the, some of whom were philosophers, but some of whom were more devoted worshipers at Athens, what does he start by saying? Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. He uses that as a compliment. He's not saying y'all are dumb because you believe in all of these different gods that do all these different things. Because if you start there, you're already turning a good number of your audience off to your message, whether you're a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist or anything like that. If you're trying to convert people and you start by saying what you're doing is wrong, that's not how you get the message across. And so religiosity is a, as a concept is a good thing. You know, if, if you're, say you're a, you're an, you're a Muslim and you're trying to convince me a Christian to subscribe to Islam. What you don't do is start by attacking the identity of Christ and the way that we worship and things like that. I would want a more open, positive approach like the one that Paul uses when he says, I perceive that you're very religious because that's something that that's common ground from which you can start building a relationship rather than just a head and head argument. Absolutely. Like, like we've been saying, being religious is a good thing. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. I think maybe the first one that we should talk about is the fact that it ties us to something bigger than ourselves. Tim hinted at this earlier, right? Not only does religion tie you to a deity, which is of course something bigger than ourselves, but it gives us a sense of community. It gives us a history. It gives us a purpose. And so when we are religious, again, no matter what religion you subscribe to, that ties you to something much larger than yourself. And it gives you a chance to focus externally instead of internally. It gives you a chance to look around. And again, you have that sense of community. You have that history. You have that purpose. And you have something to look forward to. And so religion, one of the reasons that we want to encourage you to be religious is because it ties you to something bigger than yourself. 
No yeah. comments. All right, cool. Amen. There you go. <laughs> I mean, whenever something's well spoken, you just kind of let it sit there yeah. for a second. Let it simmer. All right. We also see religion, like I said, it ties us to something bigger than ourselves. It gives us that sense of community, of family, right? We as Christians, we use the term brother and sister when we're referring to someone else who is a Christian because that's the kind of relationship that we have with them. We are a family, and God is, of course, our father. But something else that religion can do for you and for anyone else is that it usually is used to improve yourself or the world around you. The goal of a lot of religions is to make yourself into a better person, to make yourself a more, uh, more like whatever deity that, is, that it is you follow, whether that it be the Buddha or the Hindu religion or uh, Christianity. Whatever religion it is, the goal is to improve yourself and when you do that, you're also going to want to improve other people, help other people learn about your God, help other people be better people. And so obviously people have used religion, whatever religion it may be, for negative things in the past. And I, I don't want to brush past that. That has happened a lot. People have justified a lot of awful things in the name of religion. There's a comedian named George Carlin who sort of as a joking point but he says this, and you sort of like think about it, and you're like, oh, he's kind of right. He says in one of his bits, more people have been killed in the name of God than by any other reason. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's really sad, but also kind of true. If you look back over the course of human history, religion has justified a lot of bad stuff. And that's, I feel like that's, you need to acknowledge that, but obviously that's not what we're shooting for here. We're right. not saying, what's the best justification I can come up with to do what I want? That's not the point of, I think, as we've already covered with the definition of religion, that's not what you're shooting for. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, oftentimes, and we don't want to judge the, the people who have made these mistakes, but oftentimes it's people twisting their religion or, or ignoring certain parts of their religion, like you said, Luke, to be able to justify what it is that they want to do, right? And we see this a lot within the Christian community. People will take one verse out of the, the book that it's in, out of the section that's in, after the chapter that, that it's in, it will take that one verse and just read that and claim to that and cling to that as their entire gospel. And there's a lot of wacky ideas out there because of it. A lot of people coming up with things that are the exact opposite of what that verse is actually trying to say because they don't take the time to really read that verse because they don't want to. It's not going to justify what they want. And so when we are encouraging you to be religious, we're encouraging you to give your full devotion, your full dedication to this. Because when you are doing it half-heartedly or just taking someone else's word for it, that's when religion can be used to justify a lot of awful things. And that's not the point of any religion out there. I think something I want to tap on based on what you just said, as we begin to branch out from Christianity, we're kind of centering on, is that that claim you made of they don't want to. Um, a lot of times we can think about religiosity in terms of everyone chooses everything they believe. This isn't necessarily true, nor does everyone in every group believe the same way as the next person. Everyone has their own different levels of understanding and devotion to whatever it is they ascribe to. And so especially whenever you're dealing with people who may not agree with you in your worldview, to assume that they believe things exactly the way that you understand the base levels of whatever it is that you're talking about is not a assumption with substance. 
which is why we once again emphasize we are not experts in any of the religions we are about to discuss except arguably Christianity. And even then, I don't feel like an expert most days. So. We're experienced in it right? rather than have expertise. Right. I think that's a good way of looking at it. And I think that gives us a perfect segue into talking about these different religions. What we plan to do over the next couple of minutes here on this episode is to look at the six most popular kinds of religions out there. Uh, going in reverse order, so starting with number six and working our way up to number one. And what we want to do is just give you a basic overview of this religion. We're, we're not going to try and go in depth. Again, as we've said, we're not experts in a lot of these religions. We have a little bit of experience, and we've heard some teachings of these religions, but we are not experts by any means. And so the first one that we want to look at, uh, and before we jump into that, Obviously, again, we want to give just a, a brief overview, and then we also want to make sure that we are uh, emphasizing what makes each religion a little bit different from the next. Uh, but the number six here, uh, and this is according to Wikipedia, so if these numbers are off, then don't. And don't by hit us. by the way, we're not talking, we're not tackling atheism slash secularism because that is more of a thought system. If you, if you factored in atheism slash secularism, that becomes like, I think, number five on the list. But we're not going to tackle that just because that's more of a thought system than it is a religion. You can make an argument for the fact that secularism is its own religion and the object of the religion is just sort of the secular world. But we're not going to open that can of worms beyond saying we're not opening that, opening that can of worms. So... Yeah. Thank you for, for reminding us of that, Luke. But uh, at number six, we have Judaism. Or Judaism. Sorry, excuse my, excuse my uh, speech welter there. Judaism is uh, number six in the most popular world religions. And of course, Judaism uh, follows the Torah, follows what we as Christians call the Old Testament, and it's monotheistic. And that's an important trait of this religion is that it's something that separated Judaism for a long, long time because it was one of few, if, the only, if not the only monotheistic religion, which of course means they only worship one God. Well, what's interesting about Judaism, and I was actually just talking about this with Dr. Rogers yesterday, is that, and this is a good example of what we've just said about not assuming, you know, you meet somebody and they say, well, I follow Judaism, I'm a Jew, and not assuming okay, everything I know about the Old Testament is now true of this person. We were talking about the development of the Messiah idea over the course of Judaism. If, you, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament or with the term, the Messiah is, it literally means the anointed one. It's the salvific figure of the Old Testament. It's the person who is going to come in and make sure that the people who have followed this religion up to this point are victorious and reestablish the Jewish state according to some definitions and the salvation figure. We were talking about the development of that idea and Dr. Rogers, who is, is an expert in this field, I think, said something along the lines of most Jews don't really believe that anymore. They may hold to the, like the philosophical quote unquote idea that the Messiah is coming at some point but most of them don't actually believe in a literal Messiah in the way that ancient Judaism very clearly said there's going to be a literal Messiah. So 
there's sort of been this developing history and Judaism sort of has its different sects in especially different countries. As you cross cultural barriers, you see different versions of Judaism playing out, but most of the general aspects are still there. And I think it's also important to, when we look at Judaism, uh, especially when what we see in the Old Testament and very much in the Gospels, is Jews have a tendency, or at least did have a tendency, to really cling to, to traditions mm -hmm. instead of what, what was written down. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, that's a kind of a blanket statement, but they have a, a tendency to cling to people's teachings instead of what was written down in their, in their holy books. Uh, we see this a lot with the examples of the Pharisees in the Gospels, right, where the Pharisees would constantly condemn Jesus and his disciples for doing anything on the Sabbath. Uh, we see that Jesus and Paul and men like that were whipped 39 times, even though the, the max was 40, and Jews would do, uh, would do that so that in case they miscounted, they wouldn't be punished eternally for that. Uh, there, there's a, an example out there of something called the Bleeding Pharisees, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that with that or not, but basically it was Pharisees who were so scared of committing adultery in their heart, so scared of looking after a woman in a lustful way that they would walk around with their eyes closed, which, you know, we appreciate their, their zeal and their dedication to not uh, break the law of God. But there is a reason they were called the bleeding Pharisees, and that's because they were constantly running into things or tripping things or falling downstairs because they were walking around with their eyes closed. And so the idea here is that they are very, they cling very tightly to these traditions of their rabbis, of their teachers. And that's, again, could be a good thing, but not when it's directed towards man and not necessarily towards what Didi has said, what God has said. If you walk into a synagogue in the, in the United States today, almost all of them are going to have a Torah. They're going to have a copy of the five books of Moses. And I haven't studied this, so there's not an exact statistic behind this, but I would hedge my bets that after the Torah, the next book that you are the most likely to find is a Mishnah, which is a collection of, he of rabbinic writings rather than something like the prophetic books that we're familiar with or the Psalms or anything like that. Their tradition is very much, you know, you can there are similarities between Judaism, especially modern Judaism, and modern Catholicism in that very deeply entrenched in the tradition of the ruling class, if you want to think about it that way. Not that we're accusing any person or group of, you know, dictating faith to another, but tradition of the church or of the group is very, very central to how they view their religion. And those traditions have been passed down. And like you said, those are kind of ancient uh, rabbinistic teachings that a lot of modern Jews will, will still hold to. And I think that's a good segue to help us talk about number five, which is tribal and local religions. And those are very tradition-based as well. Did you have something, Tim? Yeah. So when thinking about this topic, it's a incredibly broad topic with this one particularly. Um, there, there's a resource out there called the Joshua Project, which talks about uh, specifically a... a Christendom outlook of people groups, kind of that go into all the nations idea. And they claim, according to their research, their current numbers are that there are 17,429 different people groups located across the world. These are people who speak a religion, uh, 
sorry, a language in one place. And of these, many of these have their own unique type of religion, especially as you get into less and less quote unquote modernized or quote unquote developed nations throughout the world, uh, especially as you move farther from cultural epicenters like Asia and Europe and now the United States. This could be practically anything. And you can even break down the larger ones into these smaller sects. This is a incredibly broad topic. So it's really hard to talk about tribal or local religions at this level. And, and I appreciate you bringing that up, Tim, especially that statistic for us, because as we as we mentioned, there's so many different versions of tribal religions, uh, different spinoffs, if you will, of other religions. And so it's it's hard for us on this episode to really get any depth on this particular uh, religion because there's so many different varieties. Uh, and like you mentioned, Tim, especially in what we might consider third world countries. Uh, and so it's hard for us to really point to anything with these tribal or local religions because each one is different. Each, each one is unique. Each one has a different set of beliefs, different deity, different practices. Uh, but we just wanted to point out to you that these things are here and, and there, as you mentioned, there's a lot of people who will hold to these. Number four on our list is Buddhism. And of course, Buddhism is following after the Buddha, uh, the enlightened one, I believe is the, the English translation of that name. Uh, and Luke, if you want to go ahead and give us a, a little bit more depth on that, if you can, please. Right. Okay. So you have Siddhartha Gautama, who is a prince of an ancient Indian dynasty. And Siddhartha Gautama has basically everything that he wants. And you sort of have... You sort of have the Ecclesiastes lesson happening at the beginning of his life, because the lesson of Ecclesiastes is, I tried all this good stuff, none of it worked, maybe I'll try God. You sort of have the Buddha, he's not the Buddha yet, you have Gautama having that revelation early on in his life and saying, hey, I'm the richest person around, I'm also miserable, this is not working. So he leaves his house, he absconds all of his wealth, and he says, I'm going to basically live in the wilderness until something happens. And eventually he is in the wilderness, he's meditating, and he comes to this enlightened state, the Indian word for which is nirvana, not the grunge band, but the concept of enlightened balance. And he comes up with this system wherein you can try to reach that state of balance for yourself. So the whole point of Buddhism as it's been passed down is how do I in whatever situation I'm in reach personal spiritual balance within myself, within the universe around me, in my relationships. Um, it, it's really focused. It's an internal focus. And this is the one of the six that we're talking about that I think is the closest to that philosophy thought experiment line because it involves less obvious devotion than these other ones do but you are very it's devotion to ideas and the worship is less you know typical than what we think of worship being but you are still devoted to this and your identity is somebody who's striving to achieve nirvana like the buddha did before me and so 
they have an interesting relationship with the Buddha himself because they don't exactly say, at least as far as I'm aware, nobody has no no great Buddhist thinker since him has come out and said the Buddha was God, or he was like God on earth, this divinely inspired figure. But he was the first one, according to them, to reach this state of perfect balance and to say, hey, this is achievable. Here are the things that I did to get there. So that's sort of the, the focus and the drive is to try and find balance in every sense that you can find balance. And there are specific virtues that they emphasize within that and specific practices that they say, this is going, this works. This is how you get to balance with the people around you and in yourself. Thank you, Luke, for, for helping us understand that a little bit more. Uh, number, I believe it's number three, is Hinduism. Hinduism is a little bit different than all the others. Obviously, all of these are unique and, and, and they have their own kind of practices and beliefs and that kind of thing. But, you know, with Judaism, we have that monotheistic focus. It's focus on one God. And then with Buddhism, as Luke pointed out, there's not really a focus on deity. It's becoming enlightened, reaching that state of mind, so to speak. But with Hinduism, we were talking about this a little bit. We are not really sure if it's monotheistic or polytheistic, if, if, if they serve one god or multiple gods. And we, there's arguments to be made for, for both sides, probably. Well, it's, it depends on how you take their description of gods, because when we think of God or a god of a different religion, we think of a personal entity and we think of something very defined, not necessarily, you know, you can't put God in a box, but you can parse things out about God that are typical of his nature. And you can't really do that as well with the Hindu gods. And you also don't have as much of a clear, like there are myths about some of them that typify them in a personal way, but you don't have like personal descriptions of their emotions and their forms and their motivations in the same way that you do with say Greek mythology, which is what we think of when we think polytheistic, you know, you don't have, here's what Zeus is like, and here's what he's the God of, and here are the different elements that represent him. That's a lot fuzzier in Hinduism. You have, you know, something between that depiction of a God and like a primeval force that is one of the governing forces of the universe. It's something between those two things. And different people will say there's just one of those with a bunch of different aspects or no, they are different things and they have specific names and different things that they do. It's, it's complicated. It's not easy to nail down. But the, the biggest focus that we want to shine a little bit of light on within the, the Hinduism as a whole is the idea of reincarnation. The idea of that after this life, you will be reincarnated or reborn in this world. And if you have done good things in your past life, and this is a very simplistic way of looking at it, of course, but if you've done good things in your past life, then the God, gods, whatever you want to call it, will reward you with a better birth status or a better reincarnation than you had previously. But if you do poor things, the wrong things, then you earn negative karma, so to speak, 
and you will be reincarnated in a lower status. And again, that's a very, very simplistic look at reincarnation and the idea of karma. You know, what you do will get paid back to you. But it's, I think that's going to help us understand a little bit of what uh, Hindus might believe. Well, and what's the, the thing about Hinduism and the karma and reincarnation process is something that reflects on Buddhism, like we just said, and something that is really a theme of all of these. You know, you ask yourself, what's the good stuff I can do to be in a better situation in the next life? And there are a lot of different definitions across the tradition, but basically the answer is be like the God, gods, forces of the universe, whatever this nebulous thing that you're aiming for is. And what are the bad things I can do to push me down the ladder to a worse situation? It's be unlike or act against the God, gods, forces of the universe, which you just, just sort of had in Buddhism. You know, how do I achieve enlightenment? Well, you do these things that the Buddha said worked. And if you think about Christianity, which we will in a little bit, how do I earn, not earn salvation? Because we can't do that. But how do I fulfill the goal in a sense? It's be like Christ. How do I not fulfill the goal? I don't be like Christ. So there's a common theme of there's this one specific point that you're striving for, which has to do with the identity aspect. Right, right. I appreciate you tying that back into it. Uh, like you said, you know, the idea is to become more like God or gods that you may serve. And I, that's the point of Judaism. That's the point of some, if not a lot, of the tribal kind of religions. That's the point with Buddhism. That's the point with Hinduism. I think we can also see that with Islam, which is number two. Uh, Islam is the second most popular religion in the entire world. And again, uh, and again we have a, a monotheistic religion that's focused on one God uh, who, who the Muslims refer to as Allah. And the thing with uh, Islam that I think all religions could take a little bit of lesson from is the complete devotion that they have to Allah. They are 100% completely dedicated to Allah, to the things that he has commanded for them to do for the, the practices that they are to ascribe to, everything that they do as a person goes back to the identity that they have as a Muslim, as someone who practices Islam. And again, I think that's something that a lot of people, no matter what religion you're practicing, can learn from. Because there's a lot of people, especially you know, going back to, to Christianity, there's a lot of people that we know as pew warmers. Right? Or maybe it's the, the Christmas and Easter only crowd, right? the, the CEOs, the Christmas and Easter only crowd. Uh, these, these people who claim to be religious or claim to follow the certain religion in word, but their actions don't really say anything about that. They, they will tell you that they are a follower of this religion, but they do not act like it. And I think that's something that is very def definitive about Islam is their devotion and their, their dedication to their faith. Well, and you see that play out in, we talked a little bit about the development of Judaism over time. If you look at the development of Islam over time, Islam, as far as their worship goes, as far as the outward expressions of their faith, of the six arguably looks the closest now 
to what it did when it started. You have the five rights or the five pillars of Islam that they keep to that are based on the calendar, but that they keep to every single year. You have the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. You have the Quran, which is an incredibly impressive document. And there's a sort of unspoken rule in the Muslim community that a Quran is only really a Quran if it's in the original Arabic language. So like if I were to say the Bible is only the Bible if you have a Hebrew Bible plus the Greek New Testament on top. They say that the original Arabic version of the Quran is the only real one. And if it's translated into English or French or Spanish or something like that, yeah, I mean, you can follow that. But we really want you to get back to the Arabic Quran. Like that sort of draw and that similarity that you see across their history is very impressive. And I think that's uh, really a part of their focus on destroying falsehood. Right? When you when you translate a document from one language to another, there's going to be sentences that don't sit the same way. There's going to be words that you may not have a great translation for in the other language. And I know you guys have studied a little Greek. I have not studied Greek, but you know when we look at like we were talking about with the Greek New Testament, there are words in Greek that we don't have a, a great word for to replace it with in English. There are phrases in Greek that don't make sense the way that they're worded. And so we have to rearrange the order of the words in order to help it make sense to us as an English speaking reader. Yep. And that's, that's why I think they focus so much on keeping it in the ancient Aramaic language because of the fear of any mistranslations that could be, uh, could be written into the Quran there. And I, and, and and again, there, there's this whole focus within Islam on destroying falsehood, not just, uh, you know, teaching what is right, but destroying what is wrong. And obviously, we don't want to, you know, lump all Muslims together into the radical kind of Muslims that we may think of because of the fear that uh, some people have of Muslims in this country. We don't want to you know, make any grand assumptions or blanket statements about that kind of thing at all. Because when you look at it, at least the way that I understand it, it's only a very small percentage of Muslims who are the kind of radical, uh, kind of, I don't want to mention any specific names, but like terrorists, right? It's, very, it's a very, very, very small percentage of Muslims who, who are that extreme. And so obviously we don't, we don't want to make any generalizations here, but there is a focus within Islam on destroying what is false. Right. Allah is Allah and anything else that tries to be Allah can't happen. Right. And, and that, of course, goes in with the idea of they want to be in good standing with Allah. Right. We talked about it with Judaism and with Buddhism and with Hinduism. You want to be in good standing with your deity in order to be elevated in whatever particular way, uh, whether that be uh, physically rewarded or spiritually uh, rewarded. And so I think it's a that's a really good way to help us think about. Uh, again, a very, very basic and, and simplistic overview of the Islam religion. But as we've already mentioned a lot on this episode, and as you can tell just by the name of this podcast itself, we the three here in this room are Christians. And that is the most popular world religion. And obviously we're not Christians just because it's the world's most popular religion. And when we say Christianity, there's a lot of different denominations. There's a lot of different sects. 
within Christianity. Uh, and if you want to hear more about that, we have an episode with Logan Richardson a couple seasons ago that you can go listen to about denominationalism. But anyway, the point is, Christianity is the most popular religion in the world. And even though it is kind of accidentally lumped in with these religions sometimes, it's very, very, very different than anything that we've been talking about up, up until this point. Christianity is, is separate. And of course, as we three are Christians here, that's the religion that we, we cling to, that we hold dear. And uh, we believe that it is the religion that makes the most sense. But what makes Christianity different? What, what separates it from the pack, so to speak? There is a, certainly a nature of self-sacrifice to it. As you look through some of the beliefs that we've mentioned and some of the ways that these are applied in practice as people view them, there's certainly a bent towards achieving. There's, so with Buddhism, we talk about achieving the, that nirvana state. It's the end goal is to gain something. Uh, Christianity's end goal is self-sacrificial. It is a putting away of self. Uh, it's not, well, while there is a gain to be had, there is a reward in heaven, the goal is not in and of ourselves. Our goal is the glorification of God through ourselves. And I sort of have a theory as I look over the six that we're talking about. I think that the reason that the more popular ones are more popular is what you just said, because there's something about the self-sacrificial aspect of religion that just works if you think about okay let's go from six to one what's the point of judaism obviously it's to keep the law and to do everything right but broader than that why are you doing everything right why do you want to keep the law judaism says you want to keep the law to be a part of the jewish community that's a self-serving goal you want to become something for yourself for the sake of the community around you Tribal religions, very hard to do a very broad sweeping, what is this all for statement for, but in general, it's keep the tradition of the tribe going, which is a self-serving goal. I want to become this for the sake of myself and the generations after me. Buddhism, what are you doing it all for? I want to reach that state of nirvana. That's a self-serving goal. You want to reach that state of nirvana for yourself. Now, Hinduism's the weird one because... I think if you ask a modern Hindu, what's the point of Hinduism? Their point is that karma uh, reincarnation cycle where your goal is to improve yourself. And yes, you become more like the gods and can sort of praise them in that way. But climb up the reincarnation ladder, have good karma, self-serving goal. But if you ask an ancient, if you look at the Rig Veda, the Rig Veda is one of the founding documents of Hinduism, arguably the oldest one. There's nothing in there about that. Karma doesn't come until, I don't remember which Veda it is, it's one of the later ones. But that cycle isn't established until there's already this element of, I'm here to serve the forces that have put me here. That's where you start to see the shift from, this is not self-serving, this is about giving myself up to something. And this is why I think Christianity and Islam are the two that have drawn the most people. Because what's the point of Islam? Praise Allah. 
my life exists so that other people can see how great Allah is. Same goal of Christianity. What's the point? Point people to Jesus. No matter what happens to me, even theoretically, I think if you're getting Christianity right from a philosophical point of view, you can say, even if theoretically heaven is off the table, my goal is still to praise Jesus. Because if I can do that, I've done what I'm here to do. Those are the two. They're at the top of the list, I think, because they're the two that acknowledge it's about self-sacrifice. It's about praising God and being part of something bigger than yourself. It's uh, a great couple of points, guys. I really appreciate you two. But like, like you were saying, it's not about us. As Christians or as uh, if someone who's a Muslim, it's not about them. Right? It's about dedication to the higher power. It's about serving and glorifying your deity through your life. Of course, with us as Christians, that is for God. Our goal is to glorify God. But why do we do that? Well, it's because, and this is where Christianity separates, separates itself from Islam, as far as I'm aware. Christianity is the only religion where the deity, where the God in, in question did something for humanity that was painful, that was excruciating, that made him suffer. And it's the only religion where the deity did everything that they asked the followers to do. We see that in the example of Christ. Christ came down to earth from heaven and lived as the son of God, as a man. Right? So we have that weird little mix there where he's 100% God and 100% man, which is a little hard for us to wrap our minds around sometimes. But he came down to the earth and lived just as we live today. He's tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Exactly. Exactly. The, the Hebrews author mentions that, I believe, in chapter 2. Chapter 4. Chapter four thank you. And so the idea is that Christ came down and lived as we did. He was tempted like we are. He suffered in the same ways that we suffered. Have you ever been betrayed by a close friend? Jesus was too. Have you ever been beaten down and persecuted because you're standing up for what's right? Jesus was too. Jesus endured all of these things, and he even endured it all the way up to the point of the cross. The most agonizing and painful way of torture and death that humankind has ever come up with. And he didn't just do that so that we would glorify him, right? God on earth being killed by men. We didn't, he didn't do that so that we could, you know, look at, say, you know, oh, wow, you know, look at, look at this guy. He did it because of his love for us, because it required a sacrifice that only he could give so that we could escape the condemnation of our own sins, the condemnation of our own poor choices, the condemnation of us breaking the law of God. That's that's the difference to me, is that respect to Muhammad, I may be filleted on a stick because I'm on Free Artemis campus and I just said that out loud, but respect for Muhammad because, you know, I think we tend to just throw all of the Quran because we see the inaccuracies that we can pick out and we see the things that we disagree with and we just throw the Quran in the trash. But the Quran is an impressive document for one guy to come up with the bulk of. Like, that's not nothing. 
And the fact that you've got three quarters of a billion people who still hold to that is not nothing. Mad respect to the guy. But Islam doesn't have Jesus. Right. And it's you make a very good point and a very important and appropriate point about him being the example of self-sacrifice that his followers needed. But also if you just look at his character, I mean, Muhammad was a great teacher, but you don't have stories of Muhammad eating with tax collectors and sinners or associating with lepers who by every stretch of the imagination he shouldn't have or collecting his followers from a bunch of nobodies and turning them into totally different people by the end. Muhammad's a great human teacher, but I think, and I acknowledge my Christian bias as I say this, I think if you put the two of them up against each other, Jesus is the one who transforms people's lives in a more meaningful, character-altering way. As you're starting to get into uh, the image of Christ is also one that reaches out. So you, you brought up his followers coming from nothing. You brought up the tax collectors and the sinners and the lepers. Christianity is reflected in that model of Christ as something that goes out into some people who we wouldn't otherwise associate with. It, there's a very altruistic nature to it in which we are to reach out to anyone, regardless of situation, in order to do good to them with nothing in expectation in return. Uh, it's a self-sacrifice once again, but in terms of giving rather than necessarily taking from ourselves, where we're to be giving good to those around us. A couple of weeks ago, I got to worship with the Walnut Street Church of Christ in Dixon, Tennessee. And the uh, speaker there was a man named Chris McCurley, and his lesson there, he's, he's working through a series of lessons of, about what the church should be, what, what God's church should be. And in that particular lesson, I, I unfortunately only got to be there for that one service. So I didn't get to, to hear this lesson in the context of the series. But in this one lesson, he was talking about how the church needs to be a movement, not just a group of people. The church is not a social club, and it definitely should not be an historical monument, a, a thing of the past. In order for the church to be doing the things that it, uh, to be correctly doing the things that it needs to be doing, the church needs to be a movement. It needs to be like like you were saying, Tim. It needs to go out and spread to other people. It's not something that we can do by ourselves. If you, if you are a Christian by yourself, then I don't think you're doing it right. And again, uh, we don't want to pass judgment on anyone because that's not our place. But in order to be a Christian. That involves a lot of fellowship, a lot of support from other Christians, and that involves going out and telling people about this God, this Son of Man who came down to earth, lived as we did, was tempted as we are, yet without sin, and died on the cross because of his love for you, because of his love for us. That's what makes Christianity different. And I think that Again, put Christianity and Islam up against each other. They're the two biggest. I think because it goes back to the self-sacrifice aspect is a large reason why they're the two biggest. And the other reason why they're the two biggest is because they are inherently evangelistic. This is about going and getting more people who are not Christians or Muslims, depending on your camp, 
and getting them into your camp. Now, put them up against each other and ask the question, why are you evangelizing? A Muslim will say, and again, I'm not one of those, and I don't speak for all of them, obviously. But a Muslim, based on what I know, would give an answer about the importance of truth and the importance of the praise of Allah and the importance of being correct in his eyes. All of which is true of Christianity. Truth is very important, and you do want to be correct in God's eyes. But if you ask a Christian, why are you evangelizing? Because of what Jesus did for me. And because I acknowledge the fact that because of what he did for me, my entire life is about other people. And if my life is about other people and I don't try and tell them about what Jesus did for me and the fact that he could do the same thing for them, I think I've gotten it wrong. That's got to be number one on the priority list. The focus is not on us. Right. It's on the creator. It's on the savior, the risen Messiah. And I think it's important for us to think about the fact that, like, like we mentioned earlier, when you become a Christian, you are changed. You are not who you used to be. The old you is dead and gone and buried. And there is a new you in that, in that person's place dedicated to serving God and to teaching other people about him because the, the gospel of Christ is so transformative. He changes people. There's a, there's a man from back home, one of my mentors, one of my best friends, you look at the guy, he's a taller guy, he's a bigger guy, bald head, goat and a goatee, and he's just covered with tattoos. And he can tell you all kinds of wild stories about things that he did in his youth. You look at that guy and you think, wow, that guy's you know, a professional motorcyclist or a, or a bouncer at a club. Right? Just, just by appearances alone, he's a big, tough guy. He's not the kind of guy that you would expect to be a high school teacher. Not the kind of guy that you would expect to be a preacher, and yet he is. And, and you know, we look at people like him, and, and I love telling people the story about, you know, how rough he, he lived in his youth and some of the things that he did when he was younger, and then how he became a Christian and now is a minister of God's church. The power of the gospel is this. It changes people from dirty, rotten sinners, myself included, to people who are trying to be like Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. And I think that's another thing that's unique to Christianity is that sense of a new life and hope. If you look at where, where we focus on in the afterlife of these other religions, there's not really much of a change that takes place here. So with the cycle of reincarnation, you die and then you're brought about into a new place. Uh, of course, there is an afterlife in Islam, but it takes place after this world. This is a transformation in Christianity that happens while we're here. That old life is taken away. Uh, it's a life of a second chance, which is a message of very intense hope. And you see some, like you're saying, totally different stories. People who completely change because of the influence of Christianity and that second life it's given them. 
I mean, we have an example of this in the Gospels, right? In the, in the book of Acts, at least, with, with a man named Saul. Saul was a Jewish religious leader at that time, and, and he sees this new brand of, of Judaism, as he thinks about it, popping up. And he starts to arrest these people, and we even see accounts of him being present when they murder some of these people. Uh, it's Stephen in Acts chapter 7 comes to mind. And then he's taught the gospel. He's taught about Christ, and he's baptized for the remission of his sins. And from that point on, and I think it's important that, you know, it's an important detail here in the story is that formerly he is known as Saul, but for the rest of his life, he goes by Paul. And that's because of the change in him. Now, obviously, the, the name is not really important. But I think it helps us distinguish that in the life of Paul. Formerly, he was Saul. He was, a, he was a killer. He was a murderer. He was persecuting the way. Now he's Paul. Now he's a preacher. Now he's a teacher. Now he's the greatest missionary of all time. The gospel changes people. The gospel inspires people. It transforms people. And that's the kind of message that we want to present to you at home. We're not trying to teach some wealth and prosperity kind of gospel where everything's going to be good in your life, because that's not how it is. It wasn't for Paul. It wasn't for Paul. That's right. But the power of, God, of the gospel is the power to take you from who you are to who you need to be. Christianity, again, it's, it's different. It's special. It's unique. And the three of us here, and, and along with Walker and every other guest that we've had on the show, we, we hold to this and we, we believe it's true and we believe there are ways to prove that it is true. And, and that's the, the point of the rest of this uh, season is to look at apologetics and to, to look at ways that we can prove that Christianity is right. But why choose Christianity? Not going into the apologetics issues of how we can prove that it's right. Why choose Christianity at all? I think it's important for us to think about the fact that we get to be like Christ. We get to be like the Son of God. There are multiple times in the scriptures that an apostle or a disciple will write something along the lines of, if you do this, then you will be called sons of God. What a high honor that is. What a blessing that is. So we get to be like Christ, both right now and what we do, what we say, how we talk to people, how we teach. But we get to be like Christ in the internal life as well. Not only that, but we get to learn about Christ. Now we get to serve him and worship him and point other people to him. And if we are faithful to what God has said, then we have confidence and we have assurance that we will be with him in heaven for all eternity in a land filled with no pain or sorrow or tears or suffering. We'll be there with God who is the giver of all joy and comfort and peace and love. Christianity, again, it's not necessarily about reaching heaven it's becoming like christ that's that's what the word christian means 
if you break it down, it means Christ-like or little Christs, as, uh, as the Romans called the church early on. The point is to be like Christ. And that's what we want to invite you guys at, at home to do. We want to invite you guys to read the Gospels, read the Bible for yourself, and discover who Christ is. Learn about him and his loving nature, his compassionate nature, and the sacrifice that he made for you. Because the only proper response to hearing that, to reading it, is choosing to give your life for him just as he did his life for you. Now, we're not asking anyone to be crucified. Let me make that clear. We're not asking for anyone to put their life on the line. What we are asking for you to do is to read the Gospels, learn about Christ, and learn who he is. And that sacrifice that he made should inspire you to make a sacrifice of your own. To live in the way that he lived, teach in the way that he taught, do the things that he did. So that you may be like him. And even more than that, you may be with him in heaven. Thank you guys so much for joining me on this episode. I love each of you. Uh, and I love all of you guys at home. I'm so thankful for the opportunity that this podcast has given to me, that the opportunity that you two had to, to come on today. And I know that there's been a lot of things that we talked about, a lot of good discussion. And again, thank you guys so much for helping out with that. But there's probably a lot of things that you guys have questions about. And that's great. We would love to talk to you. Talk to you. We would love to help you with these questions. We would love to study the scriptures together with you. If there's any way that we can help you at all, not just with a Bible study, but anything at all, we would love to do that for you. There's many different ways that you can reach out and contact us. Uh, we have an Instagram page, TTEOJ underscore podcast. We have a Twitter under the same name. We have a Facebook page, Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast. We have an email, which is info at tteoj.com. Uh, we have a phone number as well. And we would love to get in contact with you. If there's anything that we can do for you, please let us know. We would love to, to help you understand the scriptures. We would love to help you understand Christianity. And again, thank you so much for tuning in. This podcast would mean nothing if there were not people to listen to it. And so we're so thankful for you guys and for the encouragement and the support that you have been to us. If there's nothing further, then I'm going to ask Tim to close us out in prayer. Let's bow. Father, we, we thank you. You've given us the wonderful opportunity to sit down today and not only look at what people believe and why you should uh, believe in Christianity, but also to sit down for a minute and examine why we uh, believe the way we do, to sit down and take into account the reason for our faith and attempt in some way to share it and share the reason why we are so motivated by that faith. Uh, we pray that uh, what has been said here can uh, be educational, can be helpful to some. Uh, it may not be all that someone needs in order to uh, set up or, or to really dig into a deep faith, but we, we hope that maybe it's planted a seed that may lead to honest discussion and thought. Uh, we pray for uh, those we can affect with this message and pray that 
those of us who already have been affected can uh, be able to use that reason why we believe in order to help other people choose what uh, what it is that they believe. Help us to be effective workers in your kingdom. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.